Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Sophia Ramos speaks with Assistant Professor of Art History Maggie Chow. In their conversation, Professor Chow discusses her new book, The End of Landscape in the 19th Century America. She also talks about her latest book project exploring artistic invention in maritime cultures during the 18th and 19th centuries. Can you tell me some of the favorite courses you've taught? I know we mentioned this morning the class about materials and I was really interested in that. Yeah, so I uh, teach mostly courses in American art actually, in the history of American art, but I do do some courses that span beyond that and the history of materials course is one of them and the students are actually spending half their time in the maker space on campus mm. making things out of the materials we study. Mm. So um, when we did a unit on um, plastic. They actually learned how to make 3D prints, and oh, cool. they thought about plastic as uh, for as a cheap reproductive material. We talk about older materials as well, materials with a much longer history, like glass, which actually dates back to antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think about its relationship to technology and to not just to artistic practice, even though that's my field. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, most of my courses are pretty historically grounded. Um, So American art spanning from the colonial period to the middle of the 20th century. Probably my biggest course is a lecture course in that topic. Cool. And do you find students are really engaged and excited by that? You know, I try my best to um, make history relevant to the present. Mm -hmm. So um, I just taught my big lecture course last semester, and I did this assignment. I try to push them to be creative, too. So I did an assignment in which they had to um, select some, pick a painting of some we had studied, and to make a tableau vivant of that painting. So they had to reenact it. Oh, okay. Um, This was a kind of 19th century practice where, for fun, people used to get together at parties and things, and instead of playing charades, they would, like, reenact famous works of art. Um, So I had students do that in my class, um, and I was blown away. I mean... I thought they were just treated as a kind of dumb exercise, which is going to please me or whatever. Yeah. But they actually were amazing. And they they I was challenging them to reenact historical artworks in a way that's relevant to their lives. Mm. Um, so uh, there was one group um, that had done, they picked a painting by Winslow Homer, who was a Civil War, who is famous for, um, among other things, painting Civil War scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had, there's a painting that he did of a Confederate soldier standing on a rock inviting a shot. So he's sort of being a kind of chivalrous hero during the war, but clearly in a way that is, is sort of, um, you know, he's like trying to be a martyr. So there's no like happy ending. Mm. Um, and it's like the moment when he stands up and you don't know if he's, if the shot that's fired in the distance is going to hit him. Okay. And the students who, the group of students that reenacted that piece turned it into a commentary about gender and sexuality Interesting. today. So they had one of the young women in the group standing on a pedestal wearing a unorthodox sexualized outfit. And then the bystanders were looking at her and 
looking at their phones and the the reenactment was in fact a kind of Instagram page oh. Where mm-hmm. the comments were sort of disparaging comments from this, the onlookers, cool. so it had transformed. It, it was also a kind of scene of martyrdom or something, but but completely transformed um, to something of relevance on campus. Yeah, definitely in the world today. So that is super cool. Yeah, did you have? Did you take a photo of the reenactment? Or well, they, was it, they submitted they them. The that was the oh, assignment. That was, that was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I see. Okay. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff about social media that came up. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the reenactments dealt with things like technology and social media, politics, kind of polarizing politics today, things like that. Yeah, I'm sure that came up. That's really cool. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that seems awesome. One thing when I was... uh, kind of reading and learning about you um, was that you collaborate a lot, it seems like. You're kind of not only here and locally, but also internationally. It seems like you do some collaborative projects. And I was curious if there were any other disciplines or areas of interest that people might be surprised that influence your work in art history or the arts in general. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say probably the disciplines that other disciplines that most influence my work are media studies and the history of science. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are disciplines that are very interested in um, the history of technology and how technologies change the way we think and change the way we communicate. And um, those disciplines, however, tend not to focus as much on artifacts, like They focus on technologies as artifacts, you know, a typewriter or a telephone, but not so much the product of those technologies, Mm -hmm. which art historians do. That's our kind of bread and butter is the artifact, the material presence of things. Um, So I've been very influenced by those fields and thinking about technology and communication and circulation, those sort of bigger questions, but really dealing with them in terms of material artifacts. So you have a project called New Media in the Age of Sale, um, which is something I think you've worked on previously and you'll continue with the faculty fellowship. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just tell me about that project and kind of what led you to it and you know, what's, what's it about? Yeah, sure. So this project is looking at the 18th and the early part of the 19th century, and it's really interested in globalization during this period in global transit, global exchange, exploration. And the question that I'm trying to ask is how this new kind of global connectedness at that time led to the development of new media. Um, And by that, I'm really referring to a kind of art historical definition of media, meaning materials or techniques for artistic artistic representation. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So, Within that project, there are some of the examples of types of media that I look at are whale bone, whale ivory, for instance, as mm. a material for artistic practice, um, paintings on glass that were made by Chinese export um, painters. Mm-hmm. So these are really um, new, sometimes new materials, sometimes new techniques that were introduced or brought to greater fruition in, in this period. and 
for me, these are really artifacts that deal with the very issue of connecting across space, whether that's cross-cultural or managing distance mm -hmm. or translation, something to the, of that effect. Okay. And what's it like to try to track down these artifacts or to find them? <laughs> that seems like it might be difficult. <laughs> it is hard, but really fun. So okay. this project actually started because I um, grew up in the Boston area, and there's a lot of house museums there um, that date back to the 18th century because Boston was a center for um, international merchant exchange, uh, sort of merchant sailors. Yeah. And in these houses and museums that have the, such collections, you find the strangest things. Mm. Um, and so the project really started that way. I was looking at Scrimshaw, which is the whale ivory carvings that okay. were done by whalers. Um, I was f always fascinated by that. There were tons of China Chinese export materials in these collections. So it, the project really started with the kind of my own curiosity about things that are not written about very yeah. often. Um, and since then, it has been quite an adventure <laughs> because in tracking down sort of the history, the circulation of whale, whale ivory uh, carvings. So these were made by sailors on board whale ships. But what fascinates me about these artifacts is that they also had a the, the teeth themselves were really important in um, the social lives of South Pacific Islanders, hmm. especially in Fiji, and I actually went to Fiji this summer to track down um, to find, you know, how these teeth came into Fiji and did they have remnants of their prior life um, mm -hmm. on these whale boats because they were all the, the sort of byproduct of whaling in a sense. Um, and I found that actually there were lots of examples of these teeth that are essentially a kind of spiritually significant object in Fiji. Many of them had been carved on by whalers before they transformed into mm. this other kind of object entirely. Mm. So I am just, I'm really looking forward to writing this chapter because it's not just dealing with a kind of cross-cultural discussion of an artifact, but also the kind of strange relationships it has to economic history um, because they facilitated trade between um, ex you know, merchants and Fijians, and they have a complicated status as a kind of primitive currency in, mm. in the history of anthropology. So okay. it's so I was really excited to have found these, which you know I don't think anyone knows really that. I can't believe you went there and there. you found more <laughs> information about it. That's well, not much information. Yeah. More just I was able to see the artifacts. Yeah. And even the museum curators didn't know much about them. They just mm. have a huge collection. So yeah, I, got, I was lucky that they were so open to sharing. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah. So yeah, we, we were kind of touching on like things we're really excited about continuing in this process. Is there anything else that you're really looking forward to kind of nailing down this semester? I'm, well, I'm really excited to have feedback from my colleagues in other fields because I think my own work goes outside of art history often. And um, I also th just think that the most important academic work tends to be types of 
work that informs um, other disciplines or that resonate with the questions that people are asking elsewhere than one's own field. So it's just a really good opportunity to do that in the group because you don't often have those kinds of opportunities. Conferences and other things just so, are so often discipline-based. Yeah. So. yeah, I get that. Cool. That's exciting. Um, this is kind of just a for me question. I was just wondering, <laughs> what's something that you do just to stay inspired generally? I mean, I feel like, you know, people probably often look to you and your discipline or your field generally in art and think, okay, you're creative. What do you do? Like to stay inspired, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think that that's like the answer. But I'm, but I'm curious because you are so collaborative and you now you're going to be in a really collaborative, diverse faculty group this semester. What kind, What goes through your head when you're trying to stay inspired? That's a great question. I actually, I love reading, especially, I mean, I don't always have the time, but I, I feel very inspired when I read a really good novel, actually, because um, I feel like I'm always working on my writing in mm -hmm. some way. You know, the whole, you know, when you're in school, I don't know, when you start this middle school, maybe, when they, they, they teach you how to write a five-paragraph essay, yeah. and it's, like, so boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was always, like, really bummed out, like, this is what writing is, yeah. a five-paragraph essay. So I feel like reading novels, especially... Um, really complicated novels has taught me so much about writing and so I often do that when I have time to feel inspired to write again which I'm going to be doing you know I've spent the last probably two years revising and editing mm -hmm. um, my book that had just come out so I'm really excited to really write again and um, so reading good novels is kind of my way of yeah have you read anything really great recently um Recently, I don't know. I would say, well, I can tell you probably um, my favorite author okay. um, is uh, Murakami. Mm. And because he's such a complex novelist and he writes these very experimental novels with tons of different characters and they're kind of surrealist almost. And I kind of feel like it's a really strange but wonderful model for academic <laughs> writing and I think some colleagues may find that really frightening to hear but um, but I like the idea of um, of of nonfiction and academic writing as something that is multi-threaded and has multiple characters and complex plot lines and then has some kind of like denouement in the end in which the argument unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of try to aim for that in in, in, a, in a way. I don't know. So <laughs> No, I get it. I'm totally there with yeah. you. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Um, and kind of building off that too, what's a book that changed your life? I don't think I have a good answer to that, actually. Yeah. Um, it might just be Murakami. That's yeah, great. he's a great, I mean, I just love his work. I also really like David Mitchell's work, okay. um, who's very, you know, I think they're kind of similar mm -hmm. in their experimentation with the form of the novel and their sort of character, multi-character, multi-plotline, almost like jumping around in terms of time and space mm -hmm. often. So, um, Do you yeah, like that same style in film? 
I'm not sure. That's a good question. I'm not really much of a film buff, I have to admit. <gasps> you know, I watch movies more for just like the pleasure, pure pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not much of an analyst. Me I'm too. a little too emotionally invested when I watch a film. <laughs> like, I'm just not an analyst. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I'm like that too. So, yeah, can't say. Let's talk about your book. Yeah. Um, so it came out. It came out La- over La- the summer. Over oh, the summer, okay. Uh huh. And um, it's really exciting. It's been a long project, long in the making. It was a dissertation first, and then I revised it. Um, it's called "The End of Landscape in Nineteenth-Century America," and it's a book that looks at the fate of the landscape tradition. So, so in the nineteenth century in the United States, you if you go to a museum, you'll probably notice that a lot of paintings from that period are landscapes, especially in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. Uh, And this is because Americans associated landscape with American culture, and Mm. it became a kind of most celebrated genre because of its ties to manifest destiny and expansion. Mm. And my book looks at the fate of that tradition at the end of the century. So after the end of the frontier, what happens to paintings of the West, for instance? Mm. Um, You know, how do you think about wilderness when at the end of the century, you know, large swaths of land are being developed and um, there are all kinds of environmental interventions that are making, remaking landscape altogether. So those are the kinds of questions that the book's book is looking at cool um what are your thoughts is is landscape portraiture something that is still in art like present day art is that is it represented still and yeah is there what does that look like now I guess yeah Yeah, that's a great question so um so yeah I've been get this question like your book is called the end of landscape but I still see a lot of landscape paintings (laughs) Uh, and it's true so it's not that I'm saying you know the whole genre dies but the genre as it's uh its uh, um, kind of identity in mm-hmm. the middle of the 19th century dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does happen to it is it, it slowly transforms into a more popular art form. So it goes from a kind of very sort of symbolic and um, ideal, like full of idealism, that sort of high art, almost like history painting had been for many centuries prior to that into a kind of almost, you know, the landscape gets associated with things like postcards and cheaper material forms like print culture, photography, um, things that are easy to transport, easy to to pass around. And that's still with us today. You know, a lot of wall calendars are landscapes. we think of landscapes as something that amateur artists will tend to do. Not to say that there aren't still um, fantastic artists who are dealing with the landscape in a more conventional way, but um, I would say the kind of landscape, the idea of painting a landscape that come that you know makes us think of the classic form of landscape becomes a kind of popular form. Definitely, I see that. Oh, that's really cool. Thank you for coming today. No, yeah. thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, that was really that was really fun. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can also find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. 
Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.